Thank you, Lord. God is faithful and good. Never changing, never wavering, and never ceasing to amaze us with his mercy and his grace and his love. So it's worth reflecting on it, hey? I think you can, you can accidentally get caught in cruise control as a believer. Um, you know, the drive from Edmonton to Lloydminster or vice versa is mind-numbingly boring. Really, right? It's, it's no Highway 1 in southern Saskatchewan, but it's still boring. It's nice and straight, but I, I kind of like the boring, you know? I, when we drive down to, to see my sister and brother-in-law in Philadelphia, We'll be driving down a highway with no immediate city anywhere, but you've got people on your left and right at all times. I remember being between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and being stuck in traffic, bumper-to-bumper traffic, standing still, not moving, and there's just trees around us. Like, we're, we're out in the middle. We're not in a city. We're not, and, and we're stuck in traffic, and there wasn't an accident. It was just rush hour. And uh, so we take it for granted how sometimes it's pretty easy driving from Edmonton to Lloyd and Lloyd to Saskatoon. But the one problem is, is if you're tired, sometimes just that, that easy road, when you're a little bit tired, just kind of, and you get used to it. And I, I've driven that road so many times that you just, if you're tired, you could just kind of doze off because it's kind of just straight and, 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 and fast and there's nobody around you. And so one of the challenges is is to is to not allow yourself to be lulled into well I don't know and the same thing is going to Loon Lake. Loon Lake's not a boring road; it's a beautiful road. But uh, I traveled to Loon Lake. I drive. We drive to Loon Lake twice a week at least and back. And this time of year, there's deer everywhere. And when you drive a certain route so many times, you just kind of get used to it. You know, you just, you, you get used to every little thing and you can kind of doze off. I don't know if you're like me, but I can start thinking about things. It's not that I'm sleepy, it's that I'm daydreaming, you know. And uh, I have to keep myself awake because there's, and, and alert because there's deer that, that right this season are active and they're blending in. And, and I find as a Christian, um, those roads that you've traveled a lot, you know, you've been in church a lot, some of you. You've sang songs like this for for years and years and years, it's easy to get stuck in cruise control. And when we say God is good, you're like, yeah, God is good. And I lift my hands at the right time. I put my offering in. I do everything that I've always done. And you kind of forget that you're doing them. And they lose their joy and they lose their, their value and they lose some of their thrill because you've done it so many times. So one of the tricks as a Christian, as a believer, if you've been a believer for some time, is to allow God to refresh you and, and to really put your, your heart and your faith into whatever you're doing, no matter how many times you've done it. So, you know, if you sang Amazing Grace, you know, a thousand times in your life, I pray that you'd be able to sing it like it was the first time you sang it, every time you sing it. That, it, that somehow whatever we do for the Lord shouldn't become stale and stagnant. Whatever we offer up to him should be something that's continually fresh. And that's not really what we're talking about tonight, but I'm always reminded of that when we get into a service like this because we have patterns, right? We sing first, we do an offering, and then we preach. And every now and then we'll switch up the pattern a little bit and some people get uncomfortable and, you know, but, but there's nothing wrong with the pattern as long as we don't let the pattern lull us into a sense of, well, we've done this, been there, done that, we've done this before. Allow God to keep your heart fresh. Allow him to speak to you through things in places you feel that like you've been for a long time. 
And sometimes find a way to get out of what your norm is. I'm reminded of when God said to Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house and I'll talk to you there. And we, I've, I've said this to you before, but God had to talk to Jeremiah to tell him to go somewhere where he could talk to him. You know, if that was you, Tony, let's go down over there and I'm going to talk to you. You're like, well, we're talking right now. But why did God have to do that? Well, I think God sometimes takes us out of our routine and our normal environment so that he can speak to us in ways that we were not used to hearing and that we can kind of be shaken out. So some, every now and then, I mean, little things, I think godly discipline and good habits are good, but every now and then switch some things up, do some things different so that God can speak to you in a fresh way. And, and if it means going for on a little drive or a walk or a trip somewhere or just switching your routine up a bit, let him speak to you in that and, and, and allow him to always speak fresh to you, that you're not relying on yesterday's manna, you're relying on every day, give us this day our daily bread, that you are saying, today I need to hear from you, God. I thank God for what I've heard, but I want to hear from you today. So let's, let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. As we've been studying through Revelation, we're still in well, we were in chapter 1. We have finally made the jump to chapter 2. And, and we should throw a party every time we get to a new chapter, right? We've, we've made it. Chapter 2 of the book of Revelation is Jesus' first of seven letters that he's going to dictate to John. I, I think of the thrill of getting a letter from the master. It's a thrill, and it's something that, it, the thought of it, like if I'm to imagine Jesus writing us a letter, or Lloyd Minster, the ch his church in Lloyd Minster, a letter, there's something thrilling about it, and there's something absolutely terrifying about that. Now, I know that he's speaking to his church, you know what I mean? Like, I know he's watching, I know he's here, he's right here, hi, hi Jesus, I know he's here, I know he's talking to us, but something about a letter where he's going to encourage you in the things you're doing right and, and, and help and discipline and correct us in the things we're doing wrong. Somehow that's, you know, can you imagine a letter being written to your city and for thousands of years people would read what Jesus had to say about you and, and the issues he might need to correct? You're going on the record, you know, you're, you're going to be there for a long time. Jesus himself wrote you a letter. And um, I think that would be something we all need to pay attention to. But Jesus says, red letter, Jesus says, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So that means you don't have a loophole of saying, boy, the church in Ephesus really needed to hear that. He's saying, if you've got an ear to hear, you need to hear this. Because you're going to see yourself in this letter. You're going to see yourself in this church. You're going to see some things in them that might be and, and often are at some point applicable to us. And we need to be listening. Because our Savior is speaking. Our Master is speaking. And like we said, you know, um, John himself, who was so close to Jesus who was so comfortable with Jesus that not only did he go on to the top of the mountain with two other guys and see Jesus glorified and, and transfigured, as we say, the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses and Elijah standing with him. That must have been an awesome sight. The same John that was at the cross and Jesus said, take care of my mother. The same John who rested his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. This John was so familiar and intimate with Jesus 
as a, as, a, as a leader, as a teacher, and as a friend, that I'm sure he felt like there was very few people in his life that he knew as well as he knew Jesus. But when he meets Jesus and he sees him in, in this vision, he sees Jesus differently than he's seen him. And we need to see Jesus sometimes differently than we think we're going to see him. Because the Jesus we know from the Gospels is the same Jesus ruling and reigning today. The Jesus we see in the letters to the churches uh, that Paul writes or that Peter writes or James or Jude is the same Jesus. The Jesus we see prophesied about and, and, and shown in forms and figures and shadows in the Old Testament is the same Jesus. But this is a side of Jesus in the book of Revelation that a lot of people aren't familiar with because they don't read this book as much. But this is a vision of Jesus as he is right now, ruling, reigning, glorified, King of kings, Lord of lords. And the vision that, Jesus, that John saw of Jesus this time freaked him out so much he fell on his face like a dead man. Jesus himself had to say, get up, John, don't be afraid. The boy he saw was very similar to what prophets had seen in the Old Testament. Prophets like Ezekiel who saw something, Daniel, who saw something. And what John saw was Jesus in a form he wasn't used to. And I think, like I've said before, it's important that you take in all of these different images of Jesus to form the composite picture of who he really is. And when we see this Jesus, we understand that he still loves you with an everlasting love. He is tender as the shepherd we came to know in the Gospels. He is, he is wise as the leader and the rabbi that we saw. He is all these things, and yet he is also a king who has now come into his kingdom. He's a king who has the right to rule, the right to reign. And there are times that throughout history we go on this pendulum where there were times in the maybe the Middle Ages, or may, maybe in different times in history where people viewed God with, with respect, but with great fear. And I don't mean the good kind of fear, like the fear of God in the Bible, but with a distance because he's scary and he might just kill us. And so they stayed away from God. And, and you hear it in their songs. Their songs sing about God, but rarely to God. They, they, they'll describe him in terms of respect, but never in terms of love and intimacy, or rarely. Then you move into a, a section of history where people began to know God and to know Jesus and fell back, came back to that place of understanding that he is the lover of our souls. But in recent history, it's become kind of cool to picture Jesus as your just sidekick, your buddy, you know, your, your pal, your friend. And yes, he is a friend of sinners. Yes, he is the lover of our souls. He is our friend, our brother. But he is also the king. And we need to stay away from those two sides of the pendulum and we need to bring them both together where we see him as an intimate friend who loves us and is closer than a brother, but also as a rev revered king who is worthy of our awe, our respect, and yes, our godly fear. That doesn't mean that you're afraid of God. It means that you respect and honor. And, and if you were to stand in his presence, you wouldn't be like, you know, hey, pal, what's up? There would be a sense of greatness in the room, a sense of majesty, a sense of awe, and a sense of reverence. And it's important that we understand when Jesus speaks to us, there are times he speaks so closely 
that you've never felt so loved in your life as in that moment. And there's other times he speaks, you know your love, but you, you know that the way he's speaking is as the king. And he is issuing a decree or he's speaking to his church and says, you need to fix this. And you need to fix it now. But when we hear that, we should respond not with, you know, not, not being scared of him, not, not running away, but rather embracing his word. And so the scripture says I, he's looking for people that, that delight in his words, but it also says he's looking for those that tremble at his word. So when we hear these letters, there is delight in it because this is our Savior speaking. And there's also trembling in it because this is a great king speaking to his people. And he writes to Ephesus, and, and I'm not going to go over the history of Ephesus again because a few months ago we talked in great detail over, I think, three services on Sundays about Ephesus and about the historical situation. Just to give you a quick framework, though, Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, was founded by Paul along with Priscilla and Aquila. And they came to the shores of Ephesus, and then Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there, and he went on to continue his ministry. A man named Apollos got saved in Ephesus, who became a great um, persuader of, of his, his, his fellow Hellenistic Jews who spoke Greek, who thought like Greeks, but were still Jews, and he convinced them that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, Apollos later became a pastor in Corinth. And Paul later came back to Ephesus, and in Acts chapter 19, we see great move, a great move of God, mighty miracles and signs and wonders, and people are being set free from evil spirits and, and sickness and, and, and all of these things. So much so that there's a riot, because the city of Ephesus was a, was a port city, and it was known as the light of Asia. In Ephesus... All of the new stuff from around the world would start in Ephesus and, and move to the rest of Asia. And when I say Asia, I don't mean the Asia that we think of right now. I mean Asia Minor, which was mainly, you know, in the area that we, we would call uh, certain parts of Greece and Turkey. This is uh, all the way over to Syria. That, that's that part there. And so when we talk about Ephesus, we're talking about a city that was very cosmopolitan. It was a city that was very intellectual, but it was a city that was full of idolatry and full of every type of false religion you could find. There were very dark places, even in the middle of Ephesus. I said this before, but when you'd walk around the market, just off the market would be a, a temple to, to one of the Egyptian cults, the goddess of death, that, that, that the worship of her was so um, hidden and secret that you had to kind of gain trust before you gained certain access. But there was open worship of this cult. And, and not only that, but there was another Egyptian cult, this, this goddess's husband in their eyes, that they also worshipped openly. They worshipped, of course, the most famous goddess in, 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 worshipped in Ephesus was Artemis or Diana. This goddess, Artemis to the Greeks and Diana to the Romans, this, this mother goddess that, that even today we see symbolism in our own culture from this false goddess. And it was so widely and openly celebrated. What I didn't mention, but I've told you this before, was that one of the common threads in those different cults and religions was that they all had a very perverse sexual tone to them. And so the city went. Because you become like whatever you worship, right? Right? So if your gods and your goddesses are perverted, 
you become perverted. You become liars and cheats and all these things. And, and unfortunately, the city was so dark that when Paul sets foot and begins to train disciples, first in the synagogue, then he gets kicked out, and he starts training them in Philosopher's Square in the theater of Dionysus, right in the open, in a place where ideas were exchanged, he begins to train his Bible school. And for three years he teaches. And it says all of Asia hears the gospel because of these students and this ministry. Then there's a riot because the silversmiths are the guys that make all their money on making little idols. And they're starting to notice a dent in their business because the gospel is turning people from false gods. And they're so worried about it that they say, we need to kill these Christians. We need to kick them out of the city. But of course, the gospel prevails. It's in this city that John, the apostle, eventually moved with Mary, the mother of Jesus. In fact, Mary spent her last days in this city. Some reports say that she died in Ephesus. Others say that she went to Jerusalem one last time. It's in this city that John oversees after Paul's dead, after Peter's dead, after all those guys are dead, John is the last of the original apostles alive. Of course, Paul wasn't an original apostle, but he's about as close as you could get. John's one of the last alive. And he oversees the cities, these different cities in Asia Minor from Ephesus. Timothy had been put as pastor in Ephesus. Many of you remember First and Second Timothy. Paul's encouraging young Timothy, embrace your call. Well, he eventually became pastor of this church. And he died in the streets of Ephesus. As an old man, he went out in the street as there was a parade of perverse idolatry. They were doing things that were unspeakable in public to celebrate their false god. And Timothy came out in the street and says, you guys shouldn't be doing this. And they beat him to death with rods. In this city, they took very seriously when Domitian, the emperor at the time of John's arrest, proclaimed over the whole empire that he was Lord and Savior, Lord and God. And he made everybody worship him as such. And if you refused to worship him, you were subject to arrest and execution. John refused to worship Domitian. So he was arrested, and they attempted to execute him. It failed, so they exiled him to this island. Now, John didn't die on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, after Domitian died, the next emperor said... Domitian arrested a lot of guys who should never have gotten arrested. So he issued a decree that political and prisoners of conscience, those guys that just ticked Domitian off because Domitian was crazy, those guys got released. So John got released and he spent the last of his days in his home uh, doing what he always did, teaching and administering the love of God to the churches of Jesus. When Jesus writes a letter to Ephesus, all of these things are in mind because Ephesus has been almost since its founding, a city in which Christianity had to fight to survive. Christianity was, was winning. It says in Acts chapter 19, the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. That's good. And yet there was always pushback in Ephesus. And we've said this before, but that might be a sign that you're doing something right when there's that much pushback because kingdoms are clashing with kingdoms. The kingdom of God is clashing with the kingdom of men. We see this, and uh, Jesus is going to point out some things they did right, and he's also going to point out some things they need to change. 
In Ephesians, sorry, in Revelation chapter 2, he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And by angel, we said this last week, he's not referring to an angelic divine being or creature. He's referring, the word angel can also be translated as messenger. This is the one who's supposed to give the message to the church. He's not talking to a, an angelic being. He's talking to a pastor. And he says, I want you to give the message to this church, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds, I know your toil, I know your perseverance. So toil, otherwise translated as labor, it's a word that whenever you see it in the New Testament, it doesn't just mean work. It means hard work. <laughs> it means work people don't normally want to do. It means something that's going to cost you something. It's, it's you're working very hard. In fact, he says to the Thessalonians, it's labor of love. So it's not just work. It's labor. It's, it's intensive. It's something that's not easy. I, and, and the Lord is saying, I know this. And we talked about this last week. But when he says, I know, this is a word. When he says, I know, this is a word that means I've observed. I am, I've been watching. It's not that Jesus is saying, somebody told me you guys were doing good. He's, remember, he said, I'm walking amongst the churches. I'm observing. I'm familiar through observation. I am familiar with your toil and your labor. I know the labor of you. I know the toil of you. I know that you guys are hardworking church. You're, you're willing to put the, the, the shovel to the dirt. You're willing to put your back into it. You're willing to do things no one else is willing to do. He says, I know your toil, and I know your perseverance. Some translations translate this as patience, but I think perseverance is, is really the appropriate word. This is a brilliant word. And whenever you see it in the New Testament, whenever you see it in ancient literature, it carries the idea of holding ground. In fact, if you look in old Greek literature, when they talk about this particular word, it's, it's what you'd say when you leave, you take new ground, you take new territory, and you leave a group behind to hold that ground. You know, World War II uh, and the Pacific Front, it was, it was a war of attrition. It was difficult. Uh, the, you know, the Allies were fighting a Japanese force that was willing to die to keep what they had, willing to die for the empire. They, they fought very hard and they fought very valiantly. And a lot of the initial fighting was done by the Marines. The Marines called themselves the tip of the spear, right? So the Marines would go into new, onto new islands, new places, and take territory back, take the land back. But when the Marines were done taking the land back, the army came in. And the army's job was not to take new islands or to take new territory. The army's job was to hold the ground they had. Now, you know what's romantic? Take a new ground. Right? Yeah. I mean, come on. Like, like here at the church. Let me just give you a very practical example. Here at the church, every now and then, we have an opportunity to build something new. To, to do a great project, a missions project somewhere. That's exciting. And we, we, we get pictures of, of a church being built or we, we build something new on our property. It's exciting. People are like, wow, that's new. But you know what? When we have to replace the furnace, it's the worst. Because you spend a lot of money and no one cares, right? Maintenance isn't fun. No one says, feels like the 
furnace has been changed. Like, no one cares. <laughs> and it hits you. You look, at, you look at how much it costs, and it's not exciting, you know? I mean, like, uh, it's just, well, it had to be done. But, you know, it's not one of those things that really people rejoice about because, well, we had it before. You know, when you have to, when you get a new car, that's fun. When you just get your old car repaired, it's not fun, you know? So we put a lot of emphasis on taking new ground. And we really underestimate the value of holding the ground you have. Because throughout history, it's not just been a matter of the kingdom advancing. It's been a matter of the kingdom not retreating. The enemy is okay with giving up a little ground over here if he can take some ground over here. So it's important as believers we understand that, yes, we need to, to strive to press forward in Christ, to take new ground. What does take new ground mean? That means the gospel is advancing. That means the kingdom is advancing. That means that we're growing and maturing in Christ. But it also matters that we stay where God's placed us, and there's a time to hold the ground. This word perseverance pops up. And the Greek word that's used here pops up throughout the New Testament. It's one that is in almost every letter in the New Testament. Do you well to do a search sometime of this word in the original language and see how many times it pops up. But I just want to read a little bit more. He says, you've, you've, I know your labor of love, your toil. I know your toil and your perseverance. I know your deeds, I know your toil, I know your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The rest of the letter, he's going to say what he has against them, and we're not going to go into that tonight, we will. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll, we'll tackle two more topics in this particular letter. One being what it meant to not accept a false apostle and, and the, the second to be what Jesus has against them, which is that they've lost their first love. But tonight I, I want to talk to you about this idea of perseverance. I heard a couple of different translations of that word in the Greek and one of them is staying power, holding on, hanging on, hanging on to it. You know what I mean? Holding on to it. It's very easy for us to um, find a theological reason not to move forward and also to find a theological reason to give up something we did get. We can find any reason. So sometimes we think, well, you know, those, the, the, the people who are really on fire for Jesus, the, the passionate people for God, they're the ones that are pushing forward. It's the passive people that are standing still. And I might submit to you that that's not always the case. Sometimes it's, it, I mean, if you're, if you're operating under fear or intimidation, timidity, because God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of love and of power and a sound mind, the same people that are afraid to advance are usually the people that will also retreat when it gets a little hard. Right? That's why the scripture says that we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are those who press forward by faith through the, to the preserving of the soul. So the same faith in you that causes you to push forward when you need to push forward is the same faith you need that causes you to stand when you need to stand. For all your life, you're going to have these moments where everything within you says it would be easier to just give up a little ground. 
Be easier for me to compromise what I believe here. Be easier for me to stop fighting this battle. I'm tired of fighting. Why don't I just give in? We've been fighting for so long. And, and this church could easily have said this. For decades, they've been fighting. For decades, they've been persecuted. You know, so many times we're like, God, where's the breakthrough here? We've been fighting the same battle. And he says, but you're winning. And we go, I don't feel like I'm winning. We're in the same place we've always been. He goes, that's the point. The enemy has been trying to knock you off that hill for 15 years and you're still on the hill. Oh, you know, in ancient warfare, even in current warfare, but especially in ancient warfare, high ground mattered. A hill mattered. A, a, a spot mattered. And, and the most important thing you could do at times was just not give up the ground. My ancestors were crazy lunatics who painted themselves blue and went into battle naked. Why? Why did you do that, guys? Some of them had the belief they went into battle barefoot because they believed they, they gained strength from the ground, you know, that the gods of the, the earth are with us, you know. They, they, they would put lime in their hair to make it spiky. They would they'd put, you know, they'd grow their beards out and they'd, they'd put paint all over them. They'd paint themselves blue, go naked. And the reason they did, I mean, you guys know that you're probably not going to fight as well if you don't have any armor on, you know. But the main goal was not that this, I mean, sure, you were a little bit more nimble. I guess you got nothing restricting you, your movement. But the main goal was that you'd freak out your enemy so much that they would run or they would hesitate or something in them wouldn't want to fight as hard. You don't know how many battles were won in the initial charge just because they charged with such ferocity and fierce, just just yelling and, 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 and looking like demons out of hell coming towards their enemy, that guys just turned around and ran. And once your enemy starts running, what, what happens? That's, right. That's when they lose the most men because once they start running, their backs are to you and you just start hacking them down. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of believers, we've, you know, the enemy has been disarmed by Jesus but we get freaked out by what a battle looks like sometimes or the fact that we've been fighting for a while. And the Lord is saying, I gave you everything to stand and hold that ground. Ephesians 6, we've read this so many times, but in Ephesians 6, it talks about the armor of God. Three times the Lord says, you will be able. It says you will be able to stand firm, you will be able to resist, and you will be able to stand. You will be able to withstand all and quench all the fiery darts of the enemy. He implies that, that, that all that hell has to offer is being thrown at you. Right. He says you'll be able to stand firm in the evil day. Amen. The evil day we've talked about, the evil day is probably the worst season of your life. That's why you call it an evil day. When he says day, he's not talking about 24 hours because we can all get through 24 hours. Right? right? Pretty much everybody here can get through a tough 24 hours. Yeah. But when he talks about days, a lot of times in the New Testament, it's a season of your life. And a, an evil day seems like a, a really tough season. He says, you'll be able to stand. And, and then he says, you'll be able to resist. Then he says, you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. This is amazing because what it's saying is, in the day when all the nukes that the devil's got are being launched at you, at the end of it, if you're still, if you're just, refusing to give up and run away, you'll still be standing at the end. So what in the world do we have to be afraid of? 
right? But the trick is standing. The trick is standing when it gets hard. The trick is standing when everybody else runs away. The trick is standing when it seems like, you know what, it'd be easier just to go home for a while. It'd be easier just to give in for a while. It'd be easier just to lie in bed with my Kleenexes and my ginger ale and just watch my iPad. And, and, and why do I have to fight? We got to fight because this, is, this battle is more than just about today. No battle is just about that battle. It's about the entire war. Tia and I were talking today about how before I, on Sunday I knew I was going to be preaching about healing. That morning my son is throwing up on the floor and Tia is fighting a battle that whole weekend. Tonight when we're going to be talking about endurance, Tia woke up saying I'm fighting a battle that I've had to keep fighting and that's what's discouraging is that I keep having to fight this battle. And I said I don't think it's a coincidence. We talked about it. I don't think it's a coincidence that we are often attacked in the very areas that God has called us to proclaim a certain truth. The enemy is terrified of this. Terrified that you would stand up and proclaim what God has said. And so he'll do everything he can to get you to waver on that. I think the, I think the best thing you can do is stand up and say, I'm going to say it twice as loud for those in the back. You know, I'm going to make you pay here. I want to read you something here. In Colossians 1, verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we haven't ceased to pray for you and to ask that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power. What do you think that means? Like if you're being strengthened with all power, I would think that that means every kind of power that God's got, no, no limit to it, no limit to the diversity of it, no limit to the... Uh, effect of it and the strength of it. You're strengthened with all power. God's offering everything he's got. And everything he's got is, is way more than you'll ever need. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So if it was according to your strength or according to your reserves of what you've got, then, then it might not be powerful enough. But it is coming out of his well. It's coming out of his warehouse. It's coming out of what he's got. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, that's overkill. There's never going to be a battle in your life where you need that much power. But that's how much has been given to you. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining. Here's the point. Now, when we think of power and might, we think of taking new ground and tearing down walls and, and explosions and stuff. But he says this, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And that word steadfastness is the same word that was translated perseverance in Revelation chapter 2. That standing firm and holding your ground and not giving up the ground that you've been given. So all of that power and all of that might is so that you can keep your feet on the ground that God gave you. 
so that you don't run away the first time it gets hard. You don't change your belief system because everybody around you changed the belief system. You don't change your belief system based on your experience or what you've perceived to be happening, but your beliefs are based on what he says. That you're standing firm, and it'd be easier to compromise, but you don't. It'd be easier to back off, but you don't. All at steadfastness and patience. Joyously, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You know, Jesus uses this phrase that we're talking about, this word, when he says, you know, your brothers are going to betray you, your, your mom and dad are going to betray you. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? Yes. Your own family is going to betray you. He's talking about being sold out to the authorities in a day and age where it'd be illegal to be a believer. Your own family will sell you out. That's harsh. And he talks about all these things are going to happen, and you're like, Jesus, ease up. Man, I mean, just, you know, we're with you. Do you have to scare us like this? But then he says, by your, by your endurance, same word here as translated perseverance and steadfastness, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. What's he saying? This is the same paragraph where he said, they won't really be able to harm you. Even if they kill you, they can't harm you, if that makes any sense. They can't really harm you. He says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. In all of these seven letters, there is one sentence that pops up every time. To him who overcomes. To the one who overcomes. All of these seven letters are about overcoming. In fact, the whole book of Revelation is about overcoming. It's about the overcoming of the Lamb. It's about the triumph of Jesus. And often we think of overcoming as this glorious advance where we take all the ground and we move forward. And sometimes that's what it looks like. But the picture of overcoming that we see in this first letter is not a picture of rapid advancement, although there are times where that happens. It's a picture of you will overcome because you did not give up. Amen. And often it's not in those moments that we feel like we're winning. Right? When you're under the fiercest attack, you don't feel like you're winning. You're not hashtag winning. You feel like you're losing. But you're winning. If everything the enemy has is being thrown at you and you're still there, you're winning. Amen. That's winning, guys. You need to see it as overcoming. Because there's victory in it. It's the victory of Jesus. You've got to know there's nothing the devil has. That has the power to knock you out of what God's given you. Nothing he has can knock you off your call. Right? That's, right. That's why he has to convince you to give it up. Because yeah. he can't take it from you. He can't take the gifts that God gave you from you. He has no power to take them. So what does he have to do? He has to use condemnation, shame, yeah. perse persecution, all self-doubt, all these things. He uses that so you'll just give it back. Because he can't take it, but he can get you to give it up. There's nothing he can do. Jesus said, like I said, he said, by your endurance, you'll gain your lives. Paul said this, and I find it interesting. And you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you from 2 Corinthians 12. He says, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. Now remember, the Ephesians were congratulated by Jesus for 
kicking the false apostles out. So what does a true apostle look like? He said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, signs, wonders, and miracles sound like our kind of apostles, right? Like, yeah, yeah, that's proof. But right along there with signs, wonders, and miracles, the first thing, the first thing, the top thing above the signs, above the wonders, above the miracles, as great as they are, the thing at the top of the list was perseverance. What's proof that God's working in you? What's proof of his power in your life? Thank God, I believe for signs, wonders, and miracles. But the greatest proof of his power in your life is perseverance. That you're not giving up. And he says, that's how we prove we were real. That's how we prove we were true apostles. That was a sign to you, was that when we should have ran away and we should have given up, we, we just kept standing. You have to know, you got to tell yourself, because if you don't tell yourself, probably nobody else will tell you. But you got to tell yourself in the times where you feel like you're getting beat up the worst. I'm still standing on the truth of God's word. Therefore, I am overcoming right now. I'm winning right now. Guy like Muhammad Ali. Sometimes, or Mike Tyson, some of these greatest boxers, do you know what they could do real well? They knew how to take a punch. And you see some fights. You ever see the fight where, where a guy just winds up and he gives him everything and the guy takes it and there's just that split second where you see the, the horror and you just imagine the terror on the guy's face because he just threw his best punch and the guy's still standing. Yeah. And you know what's coming after that. <laughs> <laughs> I hit him with my best shot and he's still sta looking at me right now. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm about to lose. <laughs> right? It's nothing. You, you might think the most terrifying thing in the world to the enemy is when you're kicking down his doors. I'm sure that's part of it. But I think the most terrifying thing in the world is when he throws his best at you and you're still there. Because yeah. what else has he got? That's right. Right? right? Remember, this is a gift of the Spirit. It shows up. It's a fruit of the Spirit that shows up in Galatians. It is a work of God. Yeah. So I, I, I've said this to you before. The strongest amongst us the bravest amongst us will run away if they're relying on their own bravery and strength. And some of the wimpiest, weakest looking people will be the ones that are still standing because they relied on Jesus. You know what I mean? It's amazing. It's amazing who's still standing. And it's, it's not who you think sometimes because it's not our strength, it's not our bravery, it's not our willpower that keeps us. I pray that you'd be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. With that in mind, I, I want to take a, a, a few minutes with you that we would let God work this in us. And I know you're all at different times going through different things where there might be a battle that you're fighting. There might be something you've had to deal with for years and, and sometimes there's even shame attached to that and there shouldn't be. Sometimes you're embarrassed to tell your Christian friends that you still, you still had to fight this battle because you're afraid they'll look at you and go, well, why haven't you won yet? Well, you're still dealing with that? You, you're still dealing with that? I mean, what, if you had any faith, you'd be better now. You know, that, that, that'd be over now. I, I, we've said this before. Some battles are, are, are won with a shot, and some battles are going to take some time of standing. And I want you to know you need to get over the shame that's attached 
to the fact that some battles have taken longer than others. Right? Because what that'll do is that'll isolate you and keep you out from your brothers and sisters. And it's your brothers and sisters that you need. The Bible says more than, oh, numerous times in the New Testament, encourage one another. As long as it's still called today, encourage each other. Encourage each other. What does that word encourage mean in our language? Give heart. Strengthen their hearts. The Bible says encourage the faint-hearted. Why? Because those are the people that are inches away from giving up. And the only thing that's going to save them is a believer coming and giving them some strength. Putting courage back in them. Says you can do this. Be a pep pep talker, whatever you call it. Be, be that person that motivates and, and preaches to them what they already know. Do you know how many times I've sent a text to someone and said, I know you know this, but this is what you need to hear right now. I know you know this, but I'm going to say it again. Because it's the truth we know that's first attacked, right? It's the truth we hold on to. The Bible says Satan comes immediately to steal that from you. It says that he sends affliction. When the parable of the sower, affliction came. And those that didn't have deep roots, it was the affliction that came. And it says affliction came because of the word. Affliction arose because of the word. The reason they were being persecuted, the reason affliction came was because of the revelation God gave them. Paul said that's the same reason a thorn came to him, that a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him because of the enormity of the revelation given to him. So the enemy immediately comes to steal from you what God has given. And you got to stand. Keep standing and holding on to it. Hold fast the word of life. By your endurance, you'll gain your life. And at the end of the game, Jesus says to you, you overcame. You overcame. You won. Oh, but Lord, I, I felt like I've been, I felt like I could have gone so much further. He said, there were times where you advanced and you took new ground and you, and you went further. But what I'm most proud of is that you didn't give up what I did give you. Because at the end of the game, when we talk to Jesus, here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 3. We're all going to find out. He's not going to say, what did you build? He's going to ask, what is still standing? It doesn't matter what you built. It matters what's standing at the end. What stood the test of fire? That's what's real.